Listening to Two ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and today I'll be reading from my novel. I'm just making it up as I go along, and things have not been working out as well as I intended. Chapter nine thousand nine hundred and fifty-three, Temporary Friends, Part Four: Delinquency, Elegy. The Last of the Zolpidem reads like the title of an episode of Doctor Who. I take Zolpidem to help me sleep, and I find it funny in a strange way that I now need to take drugs to help me sleep when I was addicted to cocaine and willingly stayed up and awake all night, which is the very last thing I ever want to do these days and have needed for many years. When the bottle is empty, I take the last one. I like to call it the last of the Zopidem, even though I likely already have a refill bottle waiting, and I am just emptying this little bottle of pills out. I also came to the realization that many of the people who dropped into the place every night in Freebase were not only criminals who were in various stages of legal proceedings, parole, required drug testing, etc., but many of them were armed. They were dealers who sold to smaller dealers. And they rarely, if ever, sold directly to retail consumers or users, but they enjoyed using as much or more than the end users. I doubt any of them had direct contact with purchasers in the smaller quantities. People who aren't executives or leaders or important are just people, and they are the people I like. The people who work hard and smart, underappreciated and never considered for any position because of their circumstances, their body language, their style of speech, vocabulary, their sensitivity to nuance of others in positions of authority and ambition, who seek to surround themselves with opportunity-hunting contemporaries, those they align with. Yes, elitists. Boring, hypocritical, pretentious, elitist, and wannabes. Hypocritical based on their pretense of hard-earned merit and upstanding ethical presentation, but actually as devious or worse than the obvious ones, who either stopped caring about getting ahead in the company of those people or never cared. Not worth it to them in any sense. When they come to that realization, it's like taking off a mask. You can't put it back on. And those were the people who bought from these dealers who were armed, who came to the house I lived in every night and did coke all night long. Where we lived was on the north shore of Long Beach Island in the east, on the east end of Long Beach, neighborhood known as the Canals. There were canals in what seemed like every other block And it was uh, rather affluent because most of the people who lived in the canals also owned boats. And the block we lived on had tennis courts for the locals, although there wasn't a canal on our block. Uh, We would cab it to and from work and on occasion had to share with locals who all apparently worked at uh, Channel 80, a very popular outdoor disco and nightclub on Reynolds Channel in Island Park, New York, just across the Long Beach Bridge, which had a drawbridge. The end of the block was Park Avenue in Long Beach, the main drag that cut a straight line through the entire town and all the way to Point Lookout in the east and Atlantic Beach in the west, 
This section of Long Beach was quite close to Lido Beach, another affluent hamlet on the north shore of Long Beach and close to Point Lookout, the eastern end of uh, Long Beach Island. A number of notable people had either lived or visited the area. Oscar Wilde was known to visit Point Lookout, which is for the most part a tiny slip of a town very close to or rather on the West End Inlet to Jones Beach. Lido Beach had been home to a number of celebrities including Jerry Lewis, Carol Burnett, and Stephen Eady. We lived on the block that ended at a strip mall of local businesses, including the coffee shop Bell's, like Bell, the dame from 1870s or something like that. The locals treated any and everyone who was not native to Long Beach as an intruder. I used to get breakfast there along with ice cold stairs and cold shoulders. I deserved them anyway. I was a creep. Didn't think I was. But a coked-out twit who suddenly insists on appearing at a coffee shop where everybody speaks in shorthand is a creep. A load of well-known people lived in Long Beach, people ranging from James Cagney to Vernon and Irene Castle to Joan Jett to Rudolph Valentino to the beloved Don Rickles, who is apocryphally credited with saving Long Beach from falling into the ocean. Legend has it that Don came to visit his mother, who he was very close to, at a nursing home on the boardwalk, and when he arrived, he could not believe the condition of and the treatment of the residents. He was irate, and it happened to be right next to another nursing home on the boardwalk, which was minimally better. So he bought that nursing home and wheeled his mother in to that other better nursing home on the spot. Then he had an epiphany and bought the other nursing home to improve the lives of the other invalid senior citizens. Then, supposedly, he started buying up all of the beautiful mid-century modern apartment buildings on the east end of Long Beach on the boardwalk. He supposedly kept them all in beautiful condition and charged every tenant a fair price. That's the legend. I don't know how true it is or if it is true at all, but Don did live there for a good long time with his mother. Anyway, it is a terrible thing to be the most literate, cultured, ethical person in any place, especially when you know you are not a Greek, surrounded by utter, arrogant, scuzzy stupidity. It is a demimond of lowlifes, like Blue Velvet, the movie, a surreal otherworld of stupid, sensation-chasing, cheap thrills and violence. The violence thing is something most of us could have predicted if we focused on the probability, because I think just about every one of us who was aware of the situation that led up to the violence made everyone who was aware of the situation uneasy and shifted topics away as soon as possible or refocused on micro aspects of the meta topic because they needed attention as well. And there were human beings involved who were being damaged uh, by neglect and passive exposure to abuse, which was physical, emotional, and mental. The large view was a very immature young woman who would like to spend her time with lowlifes. I don't know if she even graduated from high school because she was preggers and walking around her parents' house wearing a winter coat indoors while trying to hide her pregnancy. I don't know how long it took her parents to realize that she was pregnant, but I do know they were dysfunctional as hell. Uh, fast forward to at least five years later, and as she shot pool, drank beer, I was never ever going to be considered a debutante, although she was pretty. 
she could have tarted herself up just for the sake of not wearing flannel and sneakers every single day, but she never cared. She was the victim of abuse by her parent or parents, and as she continued to allow herself to be caught in a world of abuse and dissonant rejection of anything that might expand her worldview outside of what she was personally experiencing or was somehow attracted to, she was magnetically drawn to really bad guys. Guys who resolved their perceived issues by inflicting abuse on others, whether it was personally physical or by physical in the sense of vandalism or something even more drastic, on top of the emotional abuse. But I must say, the bad guys were hurt by her, and that made it all the worse. She played with fire and got burnt. Now, this was all going on concurrently with the drug magnet titular chef's downfall, and it was sort of like a sideshow, but it was as intense. And she was involved in a whirlwind of potboiler atrocious endeavors, chat kiting, hiding from and being found and beaten by the bad guy she hurt on a regular basis, sexual peccadilloes, one with the bad guy's half-brother, who himself was married, and he was cheating on his wife with her, and began their sexual relationship while he was supposedly helping fix up the bad guy half-brother's house, which he bought for the young woman who he reunited with, and who bought her parents' house from them for cash, which he amassed by stealing from the supermarket he was the manager of. He was the manager of a supermarket in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood and thought it was the height of hilarity to page Dr. Joseph Mengele on the PA as elderly Jewish customers shopped for groceries. This is the same guy who liked ground beef with ketchup and plain noodles. He also stole cash on a continual basis and bought sports cars and threw money at skanky lowbrow pursuits. So what happened was the bad guy was out of the house for whatever chore he was doing and the half-brother was over the house. And then the girl and the half-brother hooked up. He was a transit canine cop who carried a 44 Magnum while off-duty, and he had Elvis sideburns. He carried his 44 Magnum in a suede vest holster, and he lived at least 45 minutes away by car. He worked mostly in Brooklyn on the subway underground with a big vicious dog and a partner. So he betrayed not only his wife, but his half-brother right in his half-brother's house, with his half-brother's girlfriend, who was all too eager to engage. Substance abuse, child neglect, just giving in to passing fancies and turning them into torrid sexual taboo nightmares of being the prey of the wrong bad guy she cheated on, the kid she was neglecting and refusing to parent, her own self-destruction with not only booze and cocaine, but more drugs, including heroin. As an aside, 
And what the fuck is this with heroin? I will never grasp the appeal or the desire to escape reality so desperately that anyone would want to use heroin. Got me, got me, got me. I can't process this. There is a huge ocean between me and any appeal of using heroin. And as far as I have learned, these days it is referred to as slamming, which is an absurd euphemism, but at the same time, it is accurate. Now back to the young woman with the self-destructive conduct and her refusal to look past her own nose. She became pregnant at 17 and was in her third trimester in the late spring, early summer, and thought she was fooling everyone by wearing a winter coat in the house all day and wherever she went. She wound up giving the baby up for adoption, and that rift caused a huge emotional hellscape to explode in her own life. This became an ongoing melodrama and overtook her ability to live simply even though she had zero ambitions above doing just that, with the exception of gratifying her desires. She hooked up with a few subsequent guys, got mixed up with a complete idiot who was also a terrible, pathetically unconvincing, pathological liar and just a dope who knocked her up. And of course, they got married. They predictably split up and were divorced. He lingered around here and there because of paternity, but eventually disappeared from view with the exception of her contact with his mother, who wanted to take custody of the baby, creds to the grandma, which should have happened for the baby's sake because this girl was not a mother and not prepared in any way to grow up and take care of a human life. She wasn't taking care of others in any way. Everything she did seemed to make every matter worse, and she kept on engaging in new, dumb, self-destructive activities that just made her life a minefield of bad choices. After she had the baby, another guy enters her life for a short while, then the original bad boy comes back and makes his appeal, which she accepts and moves back into the house she grew up in, which has since been bought for in cash by her bad boy, low-life boyfriend, who is the father of the baby they gave up for adoption. Now she's got another kid by somebody else. He was obsessed with the date the baby was surrendered. The irksome thing is that virtually all of these people were contemptuous of the social conventions that bind the fabric of society, and they had no use for any of them until it mattered to them, and then it became paramount, as if it never happened to anyone else before. That became tiresome and annoying. We all know these things. We all do these things. To many of us, they are at first obligatory empty rituals, which are necessary to keep families going. They mean something to the people in our lives, so we engage, and eventually they mean something to us. Just because you don't or didn't doesn't mean that now you do. It is the focus of everyone else's life. Move along. There is an entire retail culture dedicated to these aspects of life, which you have chosen to sneer at until it became important to you. I kept on asking myself, what was I doing with these people? I was throwing my life away and it was accelerating at an increasingly rapid pace. This was never going to end well. None of it. And what do you know? 
None of it ever did. I hate to use the cliche, but they had no moral compass, collectively or individually. Just indulge whatever you want until it is exhausted, then move on to the next gratifying sensation, and don't give a shit about anyone or anything else that doesn't directly impact you in the moment. So while this is going on, we're opening one circus can of worms after another and having them intermingle. Uh, I had become somehow stupidly uh, preoccupied with the idea of being involved or witnessing or experiencing the gritty, hardcore, extremely stupid, felonious uh, procuring of these drugs. And the uh, procuring of the drugs from the badass dealer was an experience. I was taken along as an observer during one transaction with the badass dealer. That was more than enough. <laughs> the extremely poor driving skills of my friend. My friend had a terrible driving record and he couldn't just drive in a straight line. He just didn't know how to do this. Uh, the whole scene was a heart pounding slice of a very bad life I would never ever want to repeat again. It was like a gritty suspense thriller from the 70s, but it was real and it was scary. One false move and the jig was up. Plus, the entire exchange took place in the parking lot of a convenience store in a minority neighborhood in the early evening. White boys stuck out like sore thumbs. The ride to and from was, to say the least, a nerve-wracking experience. To start off with, I had no idea as to just exactly how bad a driver my friend was and uh, ascribed his truck crash to poor topographical conditions where his truck went into a ravine. It was easier for me to think that way and dismiss his inability to drive well. It was sort of like a functional illiterate getting by, being familiar with what large signs meant and routine and uh, something that they maintained to avoid catastrophe, but they had no real idea as to what consisted of any language printed anywhere other than very limited reading comprehension skills. Apply that level of illiteracy to his driving capabilities. Uh, we were in the car for a scant few minutes and had to cross over a bridge that passed over a well-known but, but particularly large body of water. And he somehow needed to be reminded several times while we were going over this relatively short bridge to straighten out the steering wheel or he would crash into cars in other lanes or into the barrier on the side of the bridge, which had a sidewalk on either direction for runners or just pedestrians. This was a drawbridge and would at various times of the day be raised. I eventually wound up running over this bridge during a period later in time where I ran 10K a day, but that is part of another story, which is interwoven with this one and I will eventually get to, but not right now. We hadn't even technically left town, which meant that we had to cross the bridge and drive on solid ground in the next town north of where we came from. And it was already a stressful experience. And we had to drive past crazy Margarita Lady's house on the way to and from. And that is quite another story altogether. An extremely weird story. Extremely. So we had to go to Freeport. 
the drive over to Freeport and the stakeout was like a William Friedkin movie. The only way to describe it. Now, meanwhile, with the girl who's getting beaten up and the place we worked in and all the melodrama going on and it's all infantile and it's all puerile and it's just taking over everyone's lives while we're there. And I'm with these people risking life and limb and prison. So we are uh, in this palpably gritty neighborhood. The light at that time of day the tension, the suspense, the danger in the cavalier dispensation with any concern for safety, the almost certain probability of arrest and incarceration if apprehended, the first strain of relief after obtaining the goods, the nervous getaway, the nerve-wrackingly poor driving skills on top of the nerves about the whole thing, exacerbating the poor driving skills, the feigned attempt at acting nonchalant, with the felonious amount of cocaine in the car on the drive back to the place, the arrival back at the place, the unsealing of the goods, the tasting, the usage, the delirium, etc. Would have been a great cinematic montage, but it was real. What the hell was I thinking? What the hell was I doing? Stupid, disobedient boy. Stupid, disobedient white boy. So painfully obvious. How we got away, I will never know. But everybody there knew we were there. Everybody. What the hell were we doing there? Oh, they knew. Stupid white boys. I never knew what kind of plants he had, if he had plans other than to use a rented house space as a weed growing operation. I never knew of any long-term desires or any other dreams. None of his associates ever expressed anything other than a preeminent overriding desire to get and stay high. And they had an implied devotion to the Grateful Dead. He never explained how he became a junkie in the first place. He never explained how he came to become a gorilla pot farmer. He never explained how he came to possess a mansion in the hills of Santa Cruz. He never explained how he determined and managed to go through the required steps to charter a private plane to fly to Grateful Dead concerts. He never explained how the people he knew or what their roles were in his life in Santa Cruz or how his departure affected or did not affect the guerrilla pot farming operation. He never explained how he avoided capture while others took the fall for any of the very real federal, felonious, state, and local crimes he was actually guilty of committing of. By his first-hand testimony to me, and my first-hand eyewitnessing of them, to whatever degree I did, for being part of the small group of teenage, young adult traffickers and hallucinogens and opiates, while touring the country with the Grateful Dead. I was not there with them, but that's what I heard. He was generous, to me anyway. They even had a story about delivering heroin to a legendary rock star in a hotel room, which seemed to be a bit far-fetched, and it was mostly an unflattering impression of that legendary rock star, calling one of the mules a fat ass and instructing him to avoid sitting on the end of a table because he would break it. My friend, the titular chef and drug magnet, had a motto he repeated often because he 
toured, as they are fond of saying, with the band, the band being the Grateful Dead, he was pointed in his distinct recollections of locations he traveled to, from his Denny's takeover in Eugene, Oregon, or somewhere around there, to asserting that the expression common among touring deadheads, there is no place like Texas, and leaving it in an ambiguous state while strongly implying that it was not a safe place for mostly harmless, scruffy hippies. Being in the room with people who use cocaine, freebasing, drinking, getting stoned at the same time, simultaneously withdrawing and jabbering in an endless series of misfiring dashes of mis-self-expression. It was an experience. It was cacophonous. And what was going around on my inside of my brain was like just a bunch of rocks banging together all at the same time. They uh, had a story about suitcase switching. Supposedly, they had a scam about being able to smuggle illegal drugs in ugly luggage. This supposedly worked in the 80s. Hell, so much of everything else he said turned out to be true. And this also seems extremely far-fetched, but this is the gist of what I was told. They would pack two suitcases. One would be filled with a decoy amount of clothing suitable for a short trip. Underwear, a few pair of pants, t-shirts, shorts, socks, toothbrush, etc. And the other would be filled with the stash of drugs. Dogs were sniffing, but not everywhere in those days. And the trick was that if you went to pick up your ugly bag, which had like 60s daisy printed designs on it or something else ugly and it was olive colored and stood out purposefully, you might be bagged by the law enforcement at the airport. But if you were detained and they opened the bag full of drugs, you can always say, that's not my bag, even though you looked exactly like the kind of guy who would be and actually was smuggling drugs. You could point to the exact clone of the bag with the clothing and say, that's my bag and get away with it, supposedly. But again, son of a bitch, she came back from harvest with a bag full of weed, dilated mushrooms and other opioids, and it was an ugly olive-colored bag with daisy prints on it. Living on the edge. So we're getting to, just before I finish, the truck crashed into a ravine on government property and his friends finally becoming curious and worried. The reason he actually came to New York was because he had a few warrants out for him. And again, he was a terrible driver. One day, while illegally driving on government land to survey the illegal crops of weed he was growing there, he crashed his truck into a ravine and broke both of his legs. He blacked out from the pain and remained trapped in the truck. His friends eventually found him with two broken legs in the truck, which he crashed on the side of a ravine due to his poor driving skills while he was inspecting his crops. By then, he had become something of a drug magnet and further regaled me with stories of chartering aircraft to fly to Grateful Dead shows. He told me that one time after a Grateful Dead show near Honor and somewhere near in Eugene, Oregon, his friends took over at Denny's. When the staff saw this horde of stone zombies headed their way, they panicked and ran out the back into the night. He and his friends, who all had cover jobs as cooks 
at India Joe's in Santa Cruz, or so they said, took over the kitchen, cooked and cleaned up, and left the amount due in the register. So he told me. Back to the story of how he came to New York, his hometown on Long Island. He had warrants out for his arrest, so he could not check into any ER or he would be apprehended while being treated. So he somehow managed to get a hippie version of a mob doctor to splint up his broken legs after a few days of excruciating pain while on opioids. He was flown to New York and sort of recovered on Long Island at another's house. He had an odd gait when I met him, and the broken leg story was the supposed reason. Another story, but I kept on living through these things in real time, in real life, and they were as true as I experienced them. So I started doubting less and less of what I'd been told. He did know how to cook. He was quite good. And he did have a cover job as a cook at a restaurant in Santa Cruz. I did visit the place years later, and it was as he told me. So I'm going to leave it at this and come back to the story next time uh, with some more detail. He hasn't quite died yet, and there's a lot to tell in between now and him dying. So thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out.